Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. The point is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. That he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Alright, welcome to Making the Hedge. My name is Josh Gibbs. I will be your host, and I've got my friend Robert Furland on with us. Welcome, Robert. Welcome. We are actually going to tonight have a... Uh, kind of a special night because we'll be talking about a topic that seems to be growing um, online at least in the, the, the conversation it seems and that topic would be dispensationalism. So uh, tonight Robert and I will be discussing dispensationalism and uh, we've put it into kind of a structured format. Uh, we put it in within that structured format we've basically got a thesis that we've come up with and agreed on which is this, you should be able to see it on your screen. It says, is dispensationalism important slash necessary for the rank and file church member? So I will be taking the affirmative that yes, uh, studying the Bible from a dispensational perspective should be and is important and necessary for just a regular rank and file church member like myself. Uh, and so that's my position. Robert will be taking the negative that no dispensationalism is not important or necessary for the rank and file church member, and he'll have reasons to support that as well. So uh, we will go uh, for 20 minutes. I'll go through my 20-minute um, affirmative uh, position, and then Robert will go through his 20-minute negative position, um, and then we will open up for dialogue between the two of us, and then anyone who... Uh, is viewing will be have the opportunity to um, type in and ask questions as well. So um, I've got the chat format here that we can put the questions up on the screen so everyone can see it, and we will do that. Uh, by the way, we did have a moderator for tonight, uh, Jeff Passage. He's moderated for me before, and uh, he actually is viewing in right now. So Jeff, thank you for viewing in. We feel really bad. Robert and I were just talking about this. Vertigo has got to be one of the worst things that you're going through. Anybody could go through. So we appreciate you being on. I'm sorry that you weren't able to moderate. I'm sure that we'll get together in the future and uh, do something again. So with that said, Robert, do you have anything? No, no, I'm just uh, excited, looking forward to it and uh, hoping that uh, after we do this, it'll work out well and maybe do a couple more. Who knows? Perfect. Sounds good. Well, I did want to, so we did a um, 
kind of a sneak peek is what we called it, a sneak peek intro to what we're going to be talking about tonight uh, a couple of days ago. And we mentioned, and I want to mention again because I think this is important, Robert is uh, the head, what, what are you the head of Faithful Families Ministries or how does that work out? Yeah, it's a, uh, a ministry that I put together and uh, it's basically a teaching ministry through articles that I have online through my Twitter. You can actually access that link that gets you right to the website. Uh, and it's got, like I said, about 100 different articles, uh, all ranging in different topics. And writing from the perspective of the fact that there are so many things that affect the family that you can pretty much pick anything and write about it and try to set people straight, give them a good compass direction of which way to head. And um, so that's pretty much how that came about. So I'm the only person that put it together. I'm the only one that works for me. <laughs> so uh, that's that's what that's all about. So it's just been a labor of love for oh, probably the last like you know, seven or eight years, maybe. I'm not even sure how long it's been. Wow. So, and for those of you who may be going through something, the reason I wanted to make sure that we get that information out there is because um, the, it's, it's really practical information. If you're going through something like as common today as it is and, and, and has been is uh, something that many people battle and deal with would be depression. I think Robert um, deals with that and gives you some really good biblical, practical advice on what does the Bible say um, in, in dealing with depression. Do you have anything that you would recommend to somebody who, who might be going through something like that, Robert, just real, while we've got the time to address it? My, well, my, my biggest thing would be for people to, to go to, um, a godly counsel first, um, you know, have the, whether it's the pastor or another counselor or whatever, just somebody who's very grounded in the scriptures to be able to take the scriptures and open them. And, uh, the, just the fact that it's going to take work, obviously, um, there's no magic pill or anything to that effect. That's what a lot of people are looking for when they go to counseling. But uh, I'm certain, because it's been the same in my life, that you take biblical principles, you apply them, and give them time, and they will prove to be uh, correct and bring about the desired um, you know, result that you're looking for. So that's depression, anxiety, those types of things, addictions, a lot of the things that are handled very differently in the secular world, um, you know, they're only temporary and, and partial fixes. They really need to get to the root of the matter, which is usually sin, selfishness, the flesh, things of that nature. So definitely if you're a Christian dealing with those things, I really would suggest uh, finding a pastor, a pastor or uh, a godly uh, Christian counselor and start looking through the scriptures and not so much uh, man's secular wisdom and interventions. So, um, yeah, once again to you guys, he's got those articles available on his Twitter page. Uh, you can you can use that as, to your advantage. I'm sure that Robert is open to uh, direct message if you have any questions that you don't want to put up on the public format that you can ask him directly. Um, so I would recommend that. And um, with that said... Um, I wanted to, uh, let's put that thesis back up here again. I just want to make sure that, um, we can see that. And then if you would like to, we'll go ahead and get started. But I wanted to ask you, Robert, so what do you think about this? Jeff is obviously, um, not able to do the timekeeping for us. So would you be willing to time me and I'll time you? Yeah, that's fine. Cause I have my phone. 
and I was just going to put it on for the 20 minute timer. I, I've run through this probably four or five times and I'm anywhere between, you know, 17 and 18 minutes. So okay. I don't think I'm going to go over, but I can certainly time you if you want me to. That yeah. would be awesome if you would. So you want a, a warning? Yeah. Just tell me, you know, um, a couple minutes. Yeah. A couple minutes would be great. Okay. All right, let me see here. I'm not going to put my notes up on the screen. Um, we'll just go ahead and get get started there. Let me pull that up for myself. I don't think you guys will be able to see that. You shouldn't be able to see it. No, you can't. So, okay. I'm ready when you are. All right. Go right ahead. All right. So first I want to make sure to uh, lay out kind of what the agenda is that I'm going to go through. That way it's really clear for those of you who are listening. Uh, the first thing that I'm going to uh, clarify would be to actually define dispensationalism. I think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions or misunderstandings about what dispensationalism ac actually is. So we'll define that. Then I'm going to give an example of the actual depth of dispensationalism itself just from one passage of Scripture. If we can see from one passage of Scripture where dispensationalism is clearly laid out, uh, then I think that we can see the practical side of studying the scripture through the lens of dispensationalism. The third thing I'm going to do is explain why it's important to the average churchgoer to understand the natural divisions of the Bible. And the fourth thing that would be um, to, to lay out, I would like to lay out some questions that without having a dispensational perspective of studying the Bible, that there are simply some questions that you cannot you sim you simply cannot answer. I'm going to lay out for a few. That, I'm going to lay out a few of those questions, and uh, make it clear that you do have the answer to these questions with a dispensational view. Uh, maybe Robert will be able to address those and, and show us how yes, you can answer those questions without a dispensational lens, and uh, hopefully we can get to that at some point. The, f the fifth thing would simply be dispensationalism uh, from an early church uh, perspective. Um, was it around before John Darby, as is commonly taught? I believe that it is. I believe it can be testified to as early as 100 AD, and you can follow it through. Um, I mean, obviously, I would say it started with Paul, but you can trace it back to the early church father writings and see that there were, in fact, dispensational perspectives, just like we have today. Uh, the last thing would simply be to show some examples of proper divisions. So let's start by defining dispensationalism. Um, the way a life encyclopedia would define it this way. I'll give a few different definitions and then I'll give you my simplified definition. It says, the teaching that God implements a redemptive and corporate plan of salvation during different periods of time throughout history. We call these dispensations divisions within the Bible. There are many differing views, this is my own words now, there's many differing views as to the dispensation, the different divisions of each redemptive plan. By one system, this is back to um, uh, the, the Way of Life Encyclopedia here. By one system, the Bible is divided into seven dispensations. The one would be innocency, two, conscience, three, human government, four, promise, four, five, law, six, church, and then seven, the kingdom. Uh, and then he goes on to say that while we don't have the, we may not agree on the exact division and the naming of the different divisions or dispensations. It's plain that God has dispensed his redemptive plan in different ways throughout the history of his creation. Here's an example. Man is no longer tending in the Garden of Eden, or building arks, or setting up tabernacles, or offering animal sacrifices, or rearing magnificent temples. 
Creation is over. The flood is over. The ceremonial and judicial laws are oval over. Pentecost is over. While these things are over there, um, and, and certain things carry over from one dispensation to another, it's important to understand that some things cease. We'll give an example of one thing that would carry over. That would be the sacrificial system of the requirement for a blood atonement. I think that we can see it started in the garden. God required a blood atonement. This has been required throughout man's history, even into uh, Abraham, into uh, Isaac, into the law, uh, even up to the time of Christ, and even through Christ himself. And salvation is obtained through no other, uh, no one other than the blood of Christ who atoned for your sins through his blood. So we would say that those who interpret Bible prophecy literally... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead here. It's apparent we've moved from a Mosaic dispensation to a church dispensation. I'm clarifying between today and the previous dispensation, which would have been the law. So there's examples of dispensational divisions within God's program. Those who interpret Bible prophecy literally uh, would see Israel's kingdom as something yet future would be called dispensationalists. There's a period of time that we would call the church age that is a parenthesis between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks. And I think it's important to understand that. There's a natural division there. The Bible gives you 70 weeks um, of, of Israel uh, being tried, and then you've got one week, which would be this, the 70th week that has not happened yet. We call that the tribulation period. Let me go on to give um, some other things that dispensational would affect. It would affect your hermeneutics. Um, it would affect whether you interpret the Bible allegorically. It would affect whether you interpret the Bible literally. Um, it, it affects church prophecy, covenant theology, end times theology, prophecy of the coming of Messiah, and Daniel. It affects your soteriology, your eschatology, uh, the great tribulation itself, who goes through it. It affects understanding the differences between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. It affects the literal millennial reign of Christ. And overall, it affects prophecy as a whole throughout the book of Revelation. It literally affects and touches everything throughout Scripture when you can see what dispensationalism actually is. The Illustrated Bible Dictionary through Easton says this. Um, it, the Greek word would be oikonomia, uh, which our word would be economy. It would be a management, a stewardship, um, something that is a method or scheme according to which God carries out his purposes towards men and we call that a dispensationalism. Vine says it this way. He says, primarily it signifies the management of a household or a household affairs. Oikos, a house, nomos, a law. It's God's household law, his management or administration of the property of others. And so it would be a stewardship from Luke 16, 2 through 4. And uh, so that's the a few different definitions of what a dispensation is. I think the uh, simplest way to say it is simply this. God's telling man how he's running things and what God expects from man in order to have a right standing with God. Uh, what I mean is this. God tells us what he's doing and we need to do it. Typically, it goes like this. Man messes up. God provides a solution to the problem. So you start in the garden. Man messed up. God gave a solution by covering, uh, covering their sin through a blood atonement. Uh, through Noah, man messed up, the whole world was evil, and God wiped them all out and gave a new dispensation following the world being wiped out 
um, under Noah and his family. Now I would like to get to the second point. I know that was a long introduction. We'll make these last few points pretty quick. There's one passage that you can go to that gives you nearly, depending on how you divide the Bible through a dispensational lens, and I think this would agree with uh, the early church father, uh, Clement, how he, he uh, views dispensationalism. It's in John chapter 3, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's the marriage at Cana. Uh, just like any wedding, you've got a lot of people at a wedding, all right? You have got a bridegroom, a bride, you've got guests, you've got the best man, you've got uh, the women who would be the mm, bridesmaids, and then you've got the queen uh, in this particular story. So here's what I'd like to tell you in the narration of this one verse, I mean this one passage. The bridegroom dispensationally would represent Jesus Christ. He would fulfill the law according to Matthew 25. The bride would be the church, according to Song of Solomon 3, 2, uh, 3 and 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 and 2. Uh, the guests would be the tribulation Jews and the Gentiles, according to Matthew 25, 1 through 13, uh, Matthew 22, 1 through 10, and Luke 17. The best man would be John the Baptist. He would represent the law up to Christ. Uh, it would be John 3, 29 and Luke 16, 16. The concubines at this wedding, they would represent Adam to the law and the prophets up to Christ. In Psalms 45, verses 12 through 17, and Song of Solomon 6, 7. The queen, there's a lot of speculation about who the queen is. Uh, some people speculate that it would be the queen of Sheba, representing the millennial saints of Christ through Solomon's reign, which Solomon would represent Christ, setting up the temple and reigning on the temple. So that would represent the millennium through 1 Kings 3, 1. 10 verses 1 through 10 in Song of Solomon 6, 7 as well. Now, why is that important? You may not have understood what I said. Um, we didn't break it down. I didn't, it wasn't my intent to go exegetically through the passage and break it down. It was just simply to show you it's in the Bible. It's there. You can see the divisions through one simple little story. Now, why is that important to you? For me as an average churchgoer, I'm not a pastor. I'm not. I, I don't have a, uh, a a seminary degree. I'm just a guy who loves the Bible. I work construction, and uh, I'm saying that from my perspective, I can see these things. I think that you can see them as well. If 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 you just simply take the time to study it out. To answer the question of why is it important to the average churchgoer, I would simply ask, how important is soteriology or eschatology to you? Which means, how important is salvation to you? How important are the end time studies to you? If you're able to be in right standing with God from the time of Genesis all the way through Revelation, you've got nothing to worry about. But here's why it's important to you. I'd say it should be important to you because if, just if, if it's not perfectly unified from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, then there is something that you should be worried about regarding salvation. Does the means and expectations that God sets in his economy as his requirement for salvation the same from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22? If it's not, then you've got a problem if you think it is. If it's not and you think it is, that's a problem for you. It's not a problem for me because I would say that I would divide the Bible, rightly divide the word, and say there are divisions I would say there are differences between God's expectation of Adam to Noah to Moses to, to the law to the captivity to Jesus uh, to the church to the tribulation 
uh, to the millennium and into eternity. I'd say there are absolutely differences in God's economy for what he requires of man salvifically. All right. So that's why it should be important to you. The Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I, I would say that if I were to interpret that verse, I'd say there should be a, a level of fear and trembling if it's not all the same. If it is all the same, you can say, you know what, we've still got uh, the gifts, the sign gifts of the book of Acts. Some people get their hands laid on them, they're saved. Some people speak in tongues right after they're saved. Some people get baptized and they're saved. Some people just get the Holy Spirit blown on them by somebody breathing on them and they're saved. I would say there are some differences just in the book of Acts that you seriously need to consider if you're going to say that it's all the same and apply it to yourself personally. Now, regarding the spiritual growth aspect of it, is, is studying dispensationalism essential for your spiritual growth? I would say that your spiritual growth is more than just about the practical things in life. I'd say that you can live a good life as a Christian. You can get to heaven with all your heavenly rewards having no knowledge of dispensationalism. I wouldn't say you're going to lose your rewards if you don't study the Bible dispensationally. I would say if you don't study the Bible dispensationally and you think that you've got to be baptized to be saved, you're not going to end up in heaven. I would say that my appeal to understanding the importance of study, it's not rooted in some vain um, philosophical or even some theological trophy, and it's not rooted in, in, in higher learning or a college seminary course, because I don't have either one of those. I have a college degree, but it's not even close to anything religious. But I would say that the reason I believe dispensationalism is important to me personally and should be applied to you and every Christian universally is because at some point, if you want to run in the Word of God, spiritually speaking, not on the practical side, I'm talking doctrinally here, if, if the Bible says that the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for correction and instruction in righteousness, you've got a doctrinal, a practical, and a historical side of studying the Bible, and the doctrinal is what would be related to dispensationalism. The practical stuff is absolutely great. You need to have it to grow spiritually. If you want to grow doctrinally, you need to understand dispensationalism. It's the foundation for understanding the natural divisions within the Bible or you will simply cut your throat spiritually speaking if you apply something doctrinally to you that was never meant for you. So I, I, I saw this analogy on Twitter. A guy said dispensationalism is putting on your running spikes. That's somebody who runs track and wants to dig in deep and really go fast compared to somebody who just has some Velcro shoes on. I'd say that the Velcro shoes would... would be completely different than saying, well, the practical is the Velcro shoes. I would say, no, the Velcro shoes is just saying that it's the same from beginning to end as far as God's um, requirements for man throughout history. But what I would say is if you want to have the running shoes in the Bible, you need to put on some spikes, and that would be dispensationalism doctrinally. Here's some people who messed up doctrinally by, not, by just theoretically speaking, uh, practically speaking, they left the Velcro on and they got in trouble. The charismatic movement did it with tongues and healing because they couldn't rightly divide the word of truth. The Roman Catholic Church does it because they fail to place scripture above tradition. They're all millennial because they believe that Matthew 5 is the plan of salvation. They do this because they fail to divide the Old Testament from the New, where works are differently requ required differently along with belief, and if you remove one, you have neither. Now, 
the, every cult believes that the church has actually replaced the nation of Israel, and they do that for the same reasons as the above mentioned. The post-trib guys, they fail to see the, to see the d- divisions and thereby put the church in Jacob's time of trouble, the, 60, the 70th week of Jacob's uh, trouble. The Campbellites do this uh, by thinking Acts 2.38 is the plan of salvation requiring baptism for your salvation. Many others, they fail to see the differences of circumcision and baptism, and thereby they justify infant baptism and baptisms of households prior to profession in Jesus as their Savior. Why? Because they fail to rightly divide the word of truth doctrinally. So why is it important to you? Well, the truth is, it really is not important to most churchgoers. I would say that if I was going to break it down and say why, it's probably not important to most churchgoers is pre- because it's not important to their pastor. That may sound really rough. It may sound really harsh. I'm not trying to be rough or really harsh. I'm just simply saying maybe there's a case of you know the, the pastor thinks it's not important, so he doesn't teach it to his people. Or maybe the pastor doesn't believe or, or doesn't is ignorant of the fact or, or is ignorant of dispensationalism altogether. He doesn't know what it means. He doesn't know how it's practical or doctrinally important to the churchgoer and thereby doesn't put it up as something that is necessary for study or would take you to another level of study. All right, so that's why it should be important to you. And that's also why it's not important to most Christians, okay, in my opinion. I could be wrong, Robert. Maybe you'll set me straight on that and I'm fine to dialogue on that in that area. Uh, so here's some questions that you simply cannot answer without a dispensational view of the Bible. One, can you tell me when the devil was created? What was he created for? When did he fall? What were the effects of this on the creation of Genesis chapter 1 and 2? More specifically, question 2, did God really create the earth formless and void, or did he create it with good? Did he create it good without any gaps between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2? Robert, you probably know what I'm talking about there. Most people don't, uh, but maybe we'll be able to address that as well from a dispensational perspective. 3, is Jesus really literally coming back to reign on earth? If he is, when is he coming? And who is reigning with him? And who's coming with him when he comes back? You cannot answer that question on who is coming back with Christ at the second coming of Christ if you do not have a dispensational perspective. Number four, is there a millennial reign of Christ on the throne of David in Jerusalem on this earth? Or is God just reigning as Jesus Christ up in the heavenlies uh, sitting on the right hand of God the Father on his throne reigning spiritually? Is it all a spiritual thing or is it literal? You cannot answer those questions without a dispensational perspective. Is there a rapture of the church? And if there is, when is it? You cannot answer those questions without a dispensational perspective. All right, I'm going to go quicker through here. When is the rapture? Can we lose our salvation? Can you lose your salvation in the Old Testament? Can you lose your salvation in the church? Can you lose it in the tribulation period? Can you lose it in the millennium? And uh, are we going through the Great Tribulation period? We as Christians, are we going through the Great Tribulation period with the Antichrist reigning and the Holy Spirit gone and uh, all of these things happening in the Great Tribulation? Is the church there? Has the church replaced Israel? Can you answer that question? You cannot answer that without a dispensational perspective. Where are we at in God's timeline of church history? If you don't have a dispensational perspective, you cannot nail down where we are at in church history. Because all churches started in, Gen- in Genesis and, and goes throughout all of history. 
There is no church history other than the church history, which is Israel, starting in the book of Genesis. And finally, why are people eating of the tree of life in the millennium, in eternity? Why is the sacrificial system implemented again? When it's not implemented right now in the church, church age, you cannot answer those questions without a, a dispensational perspective. So let me add this. That word, dispensationalism, it's a $5 word, which is in the Bible, that describes man messing up and God providing a solution for man's problem. That is dispensationalism in a nutshell. Man messes up, God gives a new system, a new economy, a new requirement for having right standing with God. So what does dispensationalism do to your study of salvation, study of end times, your study of relationships of Israel to the church? Now let me ask you this, a real practical question. One minute. No, no minutes. Oh, that's but it? Go ahead, finish up. Oh, okay. Finish up. So... I'll skip that point. That was just a few more questions. I'll end with this, and you can go over as well if you want to. Um, the, the historical side, I didn't get to that. Uh, let me read this. Clement from Ale And I'll wrap it up from here if we get a chance to get into the other stuff. That's fine. Clement of Alexandria, he says this. He makes up seven dispensations preserving the number of... This is his words. There are seven dispensations preserving the number of per perfection via systematic theology. Um, in the Tetrod, which he wrote in chapter 6, he says, It is important to observe that the patriarchal dispensation, as we too carelessly speak, is pluralized. He clearly distinguishes the three patriarchal dispensations as given in Adam, Noah, and Abraham. And then comes to the Mosaic. Uh, the editor bags, begs to be pardoned for referring to his venerated and gifted father's division which he used to insist should be further enlarged so as to subdivide the first and the last, making seven complete, and thus honoring the system of seven which runs throughout all scripture. Here's the seven he came up with. Adam embraces paradise. The first covenant honoring the syst uh, the first covenant after the fall and the Christian covenant embraces a millennial period so that we have one paradise, two Adam, three Noah, four Abraham, five Moses, six Christ, and seven on millennial period, preluding the judgment and everlasting kingdom. So that would wrap up what I was trying to get at. Robert, I'll turn it over to you. Okay. So <clears throat> that was very uh, technical, but mine is uh, certainly far less technical. But then again, I didn't look at it from uh, a perspective of dispensational theology, uh, the nuts and bolts. I looked at it as more, like I said before, you know, does it matter for somebody sitting in the pew like me? And I kind of thought about it for a while, and I thought of came up with four reasons why I'm uh, not too concerned that that is something that we need to know uh, from from the pew level, if you want to call it that. So I'll start with my remarks. So the question at hand is whether dispensational theology is important for the average rank and file member of a church to know and thereby study God's word from that perspective. My position is that the average church member does not need to know, learn, or understand dispensational theology to grow as a Christian. Dispensational theology is, in my opinion, a non-essential matter for the rank and file Christian, and is better reserved for formal academia, or if somebody really wants to study it on their own and find somebody that knows it and teaches it so they can learn it you know, the way you have it technically uh, put together. But I base this decision on four areas of concern. First, 
2 Timothy 2.15 is sometimes uh, used to imply dividing the word of God into dispensations. I don't necessarily think that's the case, but uh, it has been said. And I have for my assertion that the admonition of Paul to Timothy was made solely to Timothy, as well as to those who would come after him aspiring to teach and preach the Bible. Second, dispensational theology is a theology that is relatively young. Other theologies have been around longer and have or have not <clears throat> stood the test of time and scrutiny. Thirdly, teaching rank and file church members a theology by which to test scriptures implants within their minds a certain bias, which may, I will argue, actually violate another scriptural principle in the meantime. Finally, I fear a dispensational bend to learning scripture may cause some to throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater, and I'll get into that more afterwards. Let me begin by quoting 2 Timothy 2.15, because it kind of speaks to studying the scriptures in, in the way I like to do it. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is by far a principle worthy of closer examination. It is an often quoted verse, but within the context of the epistle, the charges from Paul's pen to Timothy's eyes, it is an imperative statement, and the subject is understood to be the person being addressed. Looking from the beginning of the chapter until, and including verse 15 of chapter 2, we find the words thee, thou, and thyself appearing 17 times in those 33 verses. It is crystal clear the exhortation in 2 Timothy 2.15 is to Timothy specifically and to all in general who aspire to teach and preach the Bible. Let me explain why this verse, though important for the average church member in the pew in its own right, is not directed towards them. Christians are to be led and fed by the shepherd. Psalm 23 is all about being led by the Lord. In John 10, 27, Jesus reminds us of that Old Testament principle. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. All Christians are to be fed the word of God. Psalm 1, 2 suggests that we are to feast on God's word daily, twice at least in principle. The verse reads, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. In Matthew 4, 4, again in the New Testament, and Jesus reiterates this by telling us that we can not only live on physical bread alone, but on every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So it's certainly pl plainly clear that the Bible does teach that we are to learn and study. And that's, that's not something that I am, I am uh, trying to dispute at all. Uh, in fact, it's my position that we are to study as rank and file uh, church members, even if we don't have the gifts of teaching and preaching. So every Christian including those who only occupy a pew, should be studying the word of God in their daily devotions. But within that local assembly, God has equipped everyone with gifts, but has called some to be teachers and some to be pastors. Not all teachers are pastors, but I would argue that all pastors are gifted teachers, whether they exercise that gift or not. Paul was both a teacher and a preacher, according to 2 Timothy 1.11 and 1 Timothy 2.7. I'm sure Paul had in his heart the idea that being a teacher was of the utmost importance. The same spirit that inspired Paul to write nine epistles inspired James to pen this warning to would-be teachers in James 3.1. The Bible says, My brethren, be not many masters or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. So it's no small thing to be a teacher. They are held to a higher standard than those not called to be teachers. And the risk of teaching God's word erroneously came with a high consequence if guilty. 
So Paul is simply telling Timothy in 2.15 to be very, very careful with the word of God, as he was to teach faithful and trusted men to teach others also. Chapter 2, verse 2. Timothy could be held accountable for what he taught and what was subsequent generations learned at the hands of those that Timothy taught himself. So to rightly divide the word is not speaking about dividing the Bible into dispensations, as some might think. It's simply a very strong warning to rightly deal with scriptures. Uh, W.E. Vine, in his expository day of New Testament words with their precise meanings for English readers, says this about the word divide in 2 Timothy 2.15. He said, what is intended here is not dividing scripture from scripture, but teaching scripture accurately. I would assert that if you teach dispensational theology, one is possibly guilty of dividing scripture from scripture, but more on that point uh, in my final section. My second argument against the average church member needing to know, study, or learn dispensational theology for spiritual growth is the understanding that this body of theology is still in its infancy relative to the scriptures themselves and are indeed younger than other theologies. Several sources, other than Wikipedia, cite John Nelson Darby as being the father of dispensational theology, as you had mentioned earlier. He was alive from 1800 to 1882, and at the time his methodology for studying the scriptures was considered to be novel. He broke down the scriptures into the seven dispensations, which you listed. But Darby could do this since by the 19th century we had the canonized 66 books of the Bible. Timothy obviously did not, so Paul's admonition to rightly divide couldn't have had anything to do with dispensational theology. Again, for those who try to point to that verse as being a dispensational uh, verse. In contrast to the infancy of dispensational theology, Reformed theology has been around since John Calvin studied the scriptures in the mid-16th centuries. There have been plenty of critics over the centuries, but it's being suggested that Calvinism and Reformed theology is actually making a comeback um, and falling back in favor with mainstream churches, even reportedly among Southern Baptist conventions and their seminaries. Now, I'm not suggesting that dispensational theology is on the same level as Reformed theology, which I unequivocally disagree with, and I think you do too, and so does Jeff and a lot of other people that follow us. But there are 300 years separating those two schools of thought, and maybe in 300 years, dispensational theology will wax and wane in favor of, with mainstream denominations. Only time will tell as people try it and try it and try it and study it. And uh, maybe somebody else will come up with another uh, variation or another novel way of looking at the scriptures. So again, I know you have a uh, thought that it might go back to the first century AD uh, or, or 100 AD. But uh, according to what we can find in, in uh, contemporary times, it goes back to John Darby. And again, that's only a couple hundred years old as far as, as that particular theology. So it still needs to, to stand the test of time. 200 years, yes, but again, it's about 300 years more for uh, for Reformed theology, and that's uh, waxed and waned and, and fell in favor and not in favor. So you never know how how dispensational theology is actually going to, uh, to be seen over time. But thirdly, teaching the average Christian to study the scripture through the lens of dispensational theology may not be in the best interest of someone wanting to study the scriptures for themselves. And here's what I mean by that. Erwin Lutzer, he was a senior pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago for nearly 36 years. He said this about dispensational theology. The dispensational hermeneutic, as you mentioned, it affects our hermeneutics. Pastor Lutzer said, the dispensational hermeneutic is a comprehensive system which 
deeply affects and shapes how one understands the scriptures. I want to repeat that because this is concerning to me. The dispensational hermeneutic is a comprehensive system which deeply affects and shapes how one understands the scriptures. Now, we are taught by pastors and teachers. They are to preach and teach in such a way that we are able to understand the scriptures. This is seen in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, where they were doing preaching, and then they were uh, explaining it to the people who didn't quite understand. And that way they were able to have everyone understand the scriptures and what was being taught. But the church member himself or herself is not supposed to stop there. There is a biblical principle at work that may be violated by teaching someone from a particular lens to study the scripture by. When Paul was preaching to the Jews in the synagogues in Berea, the Bible says of those Jews, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And that's in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Though a teacher has the responsibility to, truth, to teach truth correctly, we, as congregants in the church pew, have a responsibility also to check for ourselves if what we heard is correct. In order for one to search the scriptures to determine if what they've heard be true, one must look at what was taught, hold it up to the scriptures with an open mind. I submit that it is difficult to have an open mind when one is taught to look at the scriptures from a particular slant or bias. Many people have criticized other denominations for forcing the scriptures to fit their theology. Again, going back to the Reformed theologians and the Calvinists, that uh, happens a lot. And like you talked about with the, um, the Charismatics, and they, they try to fit their their theology, their verses that say that, uh, you know, they have all the sign gifts still going on. So why can't the same criticism be said of dispensational theology? Again, I'm not arguing the rightness or the wrongness of the theology construct itself. I'm only saying it's still a relatively recent um, theology, hasn't necessarily maybe stood the test of time. And, you know, can somebody be looking at the scriptures in a particular bias because of how they're taught to do so? So I believe that teaching a church member to study the word of God from a position that deeply affects and shapes how they test the scriptures is doing a disservice to those who are truly capable of learning and discerning truth with the help of the Holy Spirit. And I think John 16, 13 settles the matter of whether it's important to study the scriptures from a dispensationalist viewpoint to understand such things as eschatology. Because John 16, 13 says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall speak not of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So things to come to me, and according to some of the commentaries I studied up on before I put this together, uh, they're talking about end times things. They're talking about things that have not yet happened. And here we see that the Holy Spirit is the one that can certainly help a Christian who truly wants to learn. It can help him to discern that. But again, we may thwart the working of the Holy Spirit if we teach somebody to look at the Bible through a particular lens <clears throat> and theological construct. Finally, the last concern I have is probably nearer and dearer to my heart than the previous three. One of the major tenets of dispensational theology, as you pointed out earlier, is the point that Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. That is a major distinction of dispensationalists. They stress, and rightly so, that God is dealing with the church at this time, while Israel is put on a shelf, so to speak. The church will be raptured out while God resumes his dealing with Israel during the tribulation. Now, my fear 
is that Christians looking through the scriptures through uh, a lens of dispensational theology may miss valuable lessons that God has for them as one studies the relationship between God and Old Testament Israel. My fear is that people studying from a position of dispensational theology may dismiss or discount this treasure trove of lessons to be learned from Old Testament Israel. That, I suggest, could actually hurt someone's spiritual growth and development. Consider these things. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, these happen to be my absolute favorite verses in the entire Bible. I love these two verses. The Bible says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All scripture is profitable and is essential in making a man as spiritually complete and equipped as possible, uh, as humanly possible while in this flesh. But what if a person completely erroneously dismisses any opportunity to read, learn, and to grow from their studies of Old Testament Israel? Paul was concerned about the potential for such a thing to happen within the Corinthian church. Even though Paul was bridging the gap between the Jewish age and the gospel age, he didn't want the contemporaries of his day, the saints of God, the Christians at that time, to forget one important thing, how God dealt with the Old Testament nation of Israel. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now look at this verse more closely. What happened to Israel is to serve as an example and admonish us to deal with God properly. And you alluded to this a little while ago. Man messes up, God has a solution, and everything is restored. See, just because dispensations change, God himself doesn't change. We see that sentiment in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. The same God who hated sin and dealt with it harshly in the Garden of Eden is the same God who we deal with today. He has not changed his stance, in, nor has he changed how he deals with sinful people. The methods that he employs are probably different. But the principle to study and learn is the fact that God chastens sin and God blesses obedience. And that's certainly found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, in principle, when they said, you know, I put before you, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, you know, life and death, uh, blessing and cursing, choose life. So we see that God has not changed his stance for sin, nor has he changed how he deals with sinful people. If you cross-reference 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1, 1 through 11, you will find it refers back to Psalm 106. Psalm 106 is a detailed account of various, what I call, wilderness sins of Israel. There were about 10 of them listed. Now, if you study the Pentateuch, you can find the actual events mentioned in Psalm 106 and in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. These wilderness sins are all sins that today's Christians are capable of committing. And God hates sin, always has, always will, and deals harshly with it. Now, one thing not to miss is the fact that the smallest unit of a nation is actually an individual person. So saying that the church has not replaced Israel and that God is dealing with the church differently than Israel may lead people to the wrong conclusion, and it may lead them to a dangerously wrong conclusion. For instance, there are those who are being taught we are living in an age of grace. This has erroneously, erroneously led people to believe that they can do what they want, whenever they want, however they want, wherever they want, with whomever they want, and nothing will befall them. This, of course, is the false doctrine of antinomianism. 
not necessarily an offspring of dispensational theology. I'm not trying to say that. However, antinomianism does have an element of God dealing with his children differently in various times in history, and that is a tenet of dispensational theology to some extent. Now, God has not stopped dealing with the sin of his saints the same way he dealt with the sins of his chosen people in general. Hebrews 12, 11, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. So there are countless other New Testament verses that speak to the chastening of sin. How can one learn to avoid chastening? By setting out to see what God calls sin and how he deals with it and how to repent. That cycle is seen in the nation of Israel throughout the entire book of Judges, and it's played out in individual lives on a constant basis, day in and day. We mess up. God forgives us. We're restored. We mess up. God forgives us. We're restored. And so that cycle that you see in the book of Judges is just constantly being being reenacted in individual people. And it's the individual people that makes up a nation. So when God chastens an entire nation or deals with an entire nation, it's really because the multiple the multitudes of that nation are acting in that particular way and, and bringing upon the reputation of that nation of of what that is what they're going through with the sins. And it's really hard not to see the relationship between the New Testament saint and Israel when God, through Paul, uses the same names to refer to both Israel and the church. Israel and the church are called a peculiar people, Exodus 19.5 and 1 Peter 2.9. Israel and the church are called chosen, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 and 1 Peter 2.9. So my assertion is that it is of great importance to study Israel closely. My fear remains that as a, con that a congregant may mistakenly believe that since God is dealing with Israel differently than with the church as it relates to eschatology especially, he must be dealing with every aspect of a Christian's life differently. This may lead one to not study Old Testament Israel at all, thinking the whole time that none of it pertains to them. But again, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, believed and taught otherwise. And again, I bring you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 11. Hence lies the very real possibility of teaching someone dispensational theology, and through it, they draw the wrong conclusion, and again, throw the baby out with the bathwater. So they're going to take all of Israel and everything that they, they, every reference to Israel and say it doesn't pertain to me, and all the spiritual truths that they could learn go out with that. In closing, I have not asserted that dispensational theology doesn't have its place. Seminaries train men to pastor and teach from that perspective. In turn, these men teach their congregation from that very same perspective. But is it necessary for the average church member to have a handle on that to grow uh, spiritually? I say no for the aforementioned reasons. And I go a smidgen further and say it may in some cases be detrimental to their spiritual growth and development if it's not understood fully and they utilize that theory in the wrong way and they carry it to the extreme. And the example I just gave is to take Israel and every reference and teaching about it and the way God deals with it in the Old Testament and aside. And again, they lose a, a huge treasure trove of, of, uh, of stuff that they could help uh, implement in their lives and grow. So that's, uh, that's the end of my uh, position. So now open it up to you. Perfect today, Perfect. Robert. I appreciate, I appreciate that. that. I don't know why I'm hearing an echo right now. Okay, it just went away, so. Must have been a temporary thing, no pun intended. <laughs> a bug. Um, okay, so I figure what we can do from here, um, we've both laid out our positions pretty clearly. 
Um, I think that we could, uh, as, far, as far as the structure that we had, we had talked about doing together was to open it up to dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could either do it, we can structure it any way we want to. Um, either I could start by asking you a few questions and then you could take over and ask me a few questions or we can just kind of go rapid fire back and forth. All right, go ahead and ask me a question. Okay. Um, so I think my first question is, is this, you spent a lot of time, um, on second Timothy two fifteen. What I'd like to do is actually, I'm going to pull this screen up so that we can share it and, uh, everyone, uh, who's viewing can look as well. So I'm going to switch scenes here and we should be able to see it. Let me get over to my Bible analyzer app, by the way, for those of you, um, who are watching now or who will watch in the future, the Bible software that I use is uh, Bible Analyzer, which comes from Timothy Morton out of West Virginia, and I highly recommend it. Um, what I love about this um, this Bible software is that I've got I can get all my different Bible versions up here. Um, I've got commentaries, dictionaries, lexicons, and then what's really awesome, as a side note is I've got all of my books over here and uh, any reference that I search for will pull I can search in any book that I've got dictionary or commentary and it'll pull up all the references to any one of those which is similar to the Logos software and other softwares that they've got available but the um, the material you can purchase for a lot cheaper so anyways second Timothy 215 let me get back there I don't know how I ended up in John 5. Oh, it's, it's not software. No, that's not the software. That's my fault. <laughs> so, all right. It says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, this is what we're going to focus on right here. This would be the rightly dividing aspect of this verse. And this is where obviously myself and other dispensationalists would say there's a great emphasis that should be and is placed on these two words, rightly dividing. And I know that from what I understand um, or I understood uh, the way that you broke it down is that um, this can be extremely detrimental to your study um, of the Word of God, one because you lose the relationship of Israel and the church when comparing the practical side of studying Israel in the New Testament and throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So, here's he, he, all of that said. My question is, I didn't actually hear you break down the origin of these two words, rightly dividing. What what was Paul's intention when he when he wrote this down, rightly dividing? So if I didn't, I might have read over it quickly because I um, I did have that. Uh, just let me find it. Hang on. Well, and there's other things that because I I would catch bits and pieces, try to write it down, and and I'm sure I missed it. I'm sure you know. So that is That's probably right. on me. Uh, right. So so rightly dividing, okay, uh, was basically nothing more than telling, and this is how I put it in my notes, is just telling uh, Timothy to be very, very careful in the way that he teaches. Because as I alluded to earlier, you know, when Darby put together his positions on the um, the different dispensations and he came up with seven, he was doing that using the complete 66 books of the Bible. 
back in Timothy's day, he didn't have 66 books of the Bible. They weren't available to him. So any kind of rightly dividing could not have had anything to do with dispensationalism, especially if dispensationalists look at seven dispensations and they go from Genesis through Revelation. Timothy didn't have that. So the only way that you can really read that <clears throat> is understand that Timothy was a teacher. Timothy was going to be teaching other teachers. Timothy worked closely with Paul. Timothy had a great grasp of, of uh, the scriptures at the time that they had, and he was responsible for teaching other people who were going to be teaching other people. And again, I uh, forgot what verse it was, but we, oh, in James chapter 3, verse 1, teachers are held to a higher standard and a much more accountable for their actions than non-teachers because they affect generations to come. If you teach erroneously, the next person is going to, and the next person is going to, and you're going to affect generations and thousands of people potentially if you set one person on the wrong course. So that's why God is really strict with, with teachers and pastors and those who have teaching ministries and teaching roles. But that's what Paul was telling them because, again, if you read the epistle from verse 1 all the way down to verse 15 of chapter 2, thee, thou, and thyself show up like I think it was like 15 times or 17 times. And so you know that he's specifically talking to uh, Timothy specifically, but he's also making that warning to people in general who want to be teachers. And so rightly divided is basically nothing more than be very careful how you dissect it because think about it. I mean, if you, if you have a, if you're like me who grew up in the medical field and, and had a knowledge of medicine and, and, a, and a love for it, if you had a, a dead squirrel, let's say, kind of sounds, sounds kind of gross for a Wednesday night, but say a dead squirrel and you wanted to know what made that squirrel tick. I mean, if you're going to start, if you really wanted to study what makes that, that squirrel tick, you're going to really be taking it apart completely, but you're going to be very careful about it so that you can learn about as much about it as possible. So I really believe that Paul is just simply telling Timothy when he says to rightly divide, to just be very careful, pick it apart. Don't just, you know, take big, huge chunks and make generalities out of it because the Bible, as somebody put it on Twitter, the is shallow enough for new new believers to walk through it, but it's deep enough for theologians to just dive in and be over their heads. So I think that's the the warning that Paul has given Timothy and anybody else that wants to have a teaching role is be very, very careful and make sure you know what you're teaching and you really get in there. And that's what I believe that is meant by rightly divide. And again, that's what W.E. Vines, that's how he described it in his his book on expository dictionary terms in the New Testament. And that's how he broke down that Greek word that you mentioned on uh, Sunday night, I believe it was, but I don't, you didn't mention it today, that Greek word to um, where it says to cut, slice, divide, Right. that Greek word. So what I'd like to do, um, I'd like to ask a few more follow-up questions along this line and then give my response. And then you can ask me a, a, a series of okay. questions in whatever line that you wanted to. But then I've got some other questions I wanted to ask you as well, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. So here's my follow-up question. You you said that it, it basically means, rightly divide basically means, let me see if I, I quoted you right here. It means be very careful in how you dissect it. Is it, did I get you right on that quote? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, uh, for the most part, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, so, you know. what what are you dissecting? If there, do you do you do you? So I would say, dispense. We if if I'm 
stumbling on my words here, and I, I don't know why, but I'm trying to put them together as carefully as I can. Um, so if we're studying the Bible from a dispensational perspective, I think a really simple way to say that is, yes, we do recognize there are divisions within the Bible, which would mean there are differences throughout God's economy of man's history that we can see and recognize. So I guess when I look at it from that perspective and say, yes, dispensationalism is divisions, and 2 Timothy 2.15 says to rightly divide, and then you say, well, it actually it just means uh it, it means to be very careful in how you dissect it. What are you dissecting? or What divisions do you actually see in the Bible? Well, I'm not really, um, with respect to that verse and how I treat that verse and how I look at that verse and how I actually study the Bible myself when I put together a message, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, now, again, I, like you, I've, I don't have a seminary degree. I, I work a secular job, uh, but I do have a, uh, I do teach Sunday school at our church plant. Uh, every other week, and I also have a uh, set preaching schedule at our church uh, every month. So I do. Ha- I am responsible for putting together messages and things of that nature. So in my mind, the way I do it is this. I don't look from a dispensational perspective when I teach. The way I teach and how I say dig in and divide and dissect and really get in there is if God lays a, a word on my heart, just, just a word, um, I'll, I'll go into the courts and I'll start looking at every single verse that has that word in it. And then as I go through each verse, a pattern starts to form. And once that pattern forms, this message will develop. And that's what I will develop that message into. Just this little piece that came from God giving me a word, me going through all the verses, and then having a, a, a pattern develop. And then I, the message just kind of at that point in time develops itself, which is really, really nice. So that's the perspective I go with. I don't care, like, to me, dispensational theology is kind of, it's almost like a no-brainer if you just study the Bible from from Genesis through Revelation, that when they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, like, there was no more Garden of Eden. And then it just moved on to Noah. And when God said he wasn't going to destroy the earth again with another flood, well, there was no need to build another boat. So the whole point about God saving the world with a boat you know, like you just knew as you study these things that that these things are, are done. And of course, the difficult part gets when it gets and I'm kind of off topic, but it just kind of dropped in my head. The difficulty with all of this is when you get into the New Testament church and you get into the book of Acts and further on, because that's where a lot of this stuff is all discombobulated with, of course, the sign gifts and things of that nature. So I think along those lines, you, you said that you obviously see a difference between the garden. The garden was done when they got kicked out. Uh, after the flood of Noah, the, that time period was done. God destroyed the whole world and saved eight. So I, I guess my question would be, if you recognize those divisions, what would you say was different about how God was dealing with man in regards to salvation in the garden, and then after the garden, and up to the flood? Would you say it's all the same? I wouldn't say it's all the same, because... <clears throat> oh, oh, Robert! Oh no! I think you're, I think you're a dispensationalist. No, no, no! no. <laughs> I'm like you, I'm trying to choose my words carefully. In the 30 years that I've been a Christian, and the people that I've sat under, I'm sure, without a doubt, the people who have taught me are dispensationalists, because the beliefs I have are pretty much in line with dispensationalism. But why don't you want like to call yourself a dispensationalist? 
Well, no. See, my last point was that I'm not trying to dismiss it or anything like that. What I'm saying is, is it necessary? Uh, so what I'm saying is, is it necessary for somebody like me to study a, the Bible and put together a message? Because again, a lot of my messages are either topical or they're expository, but on a certain group of, like I've expository on Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I did an expository message on that. That's a little, it, it just seems a little conflicting to me because you, sp you spent so much time on 2 Timothy um, 2, is it 3.15? 2.15, uh, the uh, rightly dividing. Yeah, and, 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 and said that you can really get into a detrimental position be by dissecting the Word of God in places it shouldn't be dissected, and that dispens this, the view, the lens of dispensationalism um, can really be a harmful thing to stu somebody studying the Word of God. Now, I guess my my question would be, now that I've heard you say you do recognize there are differences and divisions within the Word of God, and God is working salvifically um, throughout these different divisions, how could it be detrimental if you recognize that there are differences in how God is um, essentially saving people um, throughout each dispensation? Well, I didn't really touch on that piece but what i did touch on was the major tenet that that dispensationalists have is the relationship between the church and israel or the non-relationship however you want to put it and that's one of the because i didn't focus on the salvific part portion of it all i just simply took it from a perspective of this if you teach somebody who is a common person sitting in the pew who doesn't know anything about dispensationalism, doesn't really want to learn it, but you tell them one thing, you know, the church in Israel, they're being dealt with by God differently during these different times. What happens if somebody takes that entire body of knowledge that's bound up in books like Haggai, books like Nehemiah, books like Jonah, books about things that obviously happened ago and they're historical and they're not happening again, all those spiritual applications that you have in the book of Jonah and the book of Haggai, of how God deals with individual people and nations made up of individual people. What happens if somebody who shouldn't really be taught dispensational theology is told that one thing, and that one thing causes them to just miss out on a ton of stuff that would actually make their life better with the simple understanding of God hates sin, God dealt with it. The sin of idolatry, the sin of adultery, the sin of, uh, of uh, complaining and murmuring, all these things that Christians do, they can go back and look at Psalm 106, they can go back into Numbers and other places in, in uh, the first five books of the Bible and really get down to nitty gritty and see why God hates that so much and read the background story to it all. But if that's Israel, and God's dealing with the church different than Israel, so I'm just going to ignore Israel and push them off to the side. I'm only going to study everything from Acts to Revelation. So that's my whole point. I'm not saying that, that's why I said it's academic. I said if people want to learn it, they can seek out somebody to teach them. But the average person, which is where I've been going with this, if they, they could have, they could take the wrong thing and run with it, and that could be detrimental to them. Yeah. So there's, there's two sides to the coin. You know, it's a good theology, and for those that it will help, it's great. Yeah. But there are others who can't handle it and who would be harmed by it. So, okay, let's. I would take it to the next level because at first I, I really couldn't tell what your position was 
on whether or not you believed dispensationalism was a good way to study the Bible or whether it was something that um, you agreed with Vine, who said that it was basically an antinomian study, uh, an antino which actually the antinomian um, perspective was something that Luther wrote against the Gnostics that wasn't uh, anything to do with dispensationalism. It was something that they had a view uh, which was completely related, related to a Gnostic theology of the, basically what we would say is um, an, an enlightenment-type mentality where the Spirit gives you an understanding without even having to hear the gospel. And I think that's what Luther was writing against. I don't think he was writing anything against dispensationalism. But in response to um, what you were saying about um, uh, who should be taught dispensationalism, the effect that it can have on someone who's not ready for it, and then saying an average churchgoer person should not be taught it because an average churchgoing person um, basically could be really harmed by getting this down when they're not ready for it. I would My response would be, one, I would consider myself, and I definitely would have considered myself an at least probably below average churchgoer or church member. Um, I'm probably just an average church guy now as far as understanding and grasping the Bible when dispensationalism was presented to me. And the reaction that I had was, what on earth is this? I've never heard of this before. I want to learn more about it. And so I think that, one, the setting of where it's presented is something that, you know, is very important. I think that who's going to be in that setting is very important, um, and under and not, not presenting it in a way that there are no, there is no availability for a follow up question. Um, I had tons of questions, and I've still got tons of questions today, and I'll never have all of my questions answered. Um, I mean, but but I think that it's it it doesn't have so much to do with should dispensationalism uh, be taught to an average church going person because it is or is not beneficial. I would say it is beneficial. And it should be taught to an average church-going person so that they can grow to that next level and see the different divisions and dispensations throughout the Bible. And I would also argue that um, Timothy was taught by Paul, and Paul was the only guy in the entire Bible who re made any reference to dispensations, and he did it three times. And uh, obviously he didn't break it down and subcategorize the different dispensations that people have done throughout history. Um, but I would also argue that I gave an example of Clement, um, who gave the same exact seven different divisions of dispensationalism as Darby did. And I think that that's something to take into consideration, that it wasn't new with Darby. It wasn't something that Timothy didn't have available, because he studied under Paul. I think Paul taught that there are divisions, there's dispensations, God dealt with people differently. And uh, Timothy probably knew that, which is why he wrote there to study the Show thyself approved unto God, um, a workman unto God that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And with that said, I'd like to show this screen here, um, showing uh, in, in my response to uh, that word of rightly divide. It says, um, in Strong's, it does say that it is to make a straight cut and dissect. So my question would be, if there are no dissections and no no straight cuts to be made in the Bible, what do you want to call it? If there are straight cuts and dissections to be made in the Bible, I call it a dispensation. 
if we don't call it a dispensation, I really don't care what we call it, just to recognize that there are divisions in the way that God dealt with man throughout history, especially salvifically. And uh, I wanted to show this as well, what um, Thayer said, and then I'll turn it over to you and see if we can go from there. Maybe you have a question for me. I don't know. Um, Thayer says this as well. He says there's two basic um, uh, applications to this word oikonomeia, which means cutting straight. And then he says it's to cut straight, always proceed to proceed by straight paths and hold a straight course to the equivalent to do right, which you said that it's uh, to handle correctly. And a lot of versions would say handle correctly. Um, but I would disagree with it. I think that that takes away from the fact that there is an actual division to be made within the Bible in the sense that this is the only time this term shows up in the Bible um, in, in this sense. So he, it, he also says in the Bullgate um, that it's to handle a right, to make right straight and smooth. Um, but that's in a second application. So anyways, um, do you have any response to that or do you want to move on? Uh, no, like I said, I think I, my hopeson was, and, and actually getting back to your point about uh, when, when you, you were excited, excited about learning, learning dispensationalism, dispensationalism, you know, the nitty gritty, the details, you made, you said something that was very important that actually supports what I'm trying to say from the opposite perspective. I think if we're going to introduce it to the average church member, it needs to be done responsibly, which is what you were saying, yeah. because you need to have the availability for follow-up. And if somebody's interested and somebody's available for follow-up and wants to learn it, I honestly have no problems with somebody learning dispensational theology if they're going to be able to be taught it properly and then be able to implement it properly. Because you don't want to teach somebody to do something and then not teach them the proper way of, of utilizing whatever it is you're teaching them. So like, you said you definitely want them to have the availability for follow-up but a lot of times in churches you know this some, some things start and then after two or three weeks they're done there's lack of interest the the bible study closes up and then these people are left with a partial truth and some will go back and keep looking others may not but that's the thing is you you have to it has to be done uh responsibly and i agree with you on that it has to have somebody available who is knowledgeable can teach it properly and is there for follow-up and um one other thing and then we can move on and that this is you might think it's funny you might think that i'm a jerk <laughs> <laughs> i think that there is a difference between the average churchgoer today and 50 years ago i think uh, an average churchgoer 50 years ago probably everybody at least had heard the word dispensation before. Um, today, I'd say they would have a reaction like me and go, what on earth are you talking about? I've never heard this before. Tell me more or I'm out, you know, like I'm lost, I'm done. So I think that the average churchgoer today probably needs a little more TLC with it. But if you've got a strong church that takes a strong stance on dispensationalism, um, and is a church that's probably what I would classify as a Philadelphian church in the Laodicean time period, which is arguable whether or not that's possible to be done or not. Um, you know, it's probably something that those people are familiar with and wouldn't have a problem, you know, understanding. So I think it has a lot to do with who the pastor is, what they're consistently teaching when it comes to that. And how, I, especially if it's a new church 
in that sense, how you introduce it and how you help the people to grow through it um, and become familiar with it. So do you have anything you wanted to respond to on that? No, I just, like I said, I agree with you that uh, there's a big difference between the church member 50 years ago and today. I mean, 50 years ago, they were probably, you know, truly in their Bible on a daily basis. Today, yeah. it's questionable how many, what percentage of the church is truly in their Bible every day, doing devotions, praying, you know, fellowshipping, going to church on a regular basis, not skipping out. I mean, there's a big difference today than 50 years ago. And teaching anything, you know, not just this, but teaching anything is, is uh, you know, a more of a challenge this in this time frame because people are just busy and they want stuff in they want stuff in 240 characters yeah you're right. they can't sit there week after week for for 12 weeks a 12-week series on a monday are you kidding me that's what they, that's what they'll say yeah you know can't you give me the cliff note version well now the cliff note versions are too long they yeah. want something even smaller than cliff notes yep Assuming you even know what a cliff note is, you're probably you're younger than I am, but you know what cliff notes are? I've heard of cliff notes. I think we had spark notes. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's just a novel this thick that's broken down to something that thin and gives the highlights of yeah. the book and then you can make your paper off of that. But yeah, we had spark notes, which was online when I was in high school. I I'd never when we would have a book report due, that's what I would get my information from. So Yeah. Anyway, but, so let's take a second, and actually, let me let me turn it over to you. You've probably got a couple questions for me, and then we'll get to a couple of the questions that we've got online, and then uh, see how much time we've got to go from there. Well, it's not so much a question. It's just something that you spoke on that I want to address. <clears throat> As I was talking to my pastor, actually, he tweeted me a direct message before we did this, because uh, he was he follows me on, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he just sent me this long track. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if he's watching or not, but uh, I'll find out another time. But the thing is, is that he, you know, we kind of went over like everything that I believe. And again, I've been taught by three pastors who have probably gone and been taught at, I know my pastor went to Liberty University, uh, my current pastor now. I'm not sure where the other two pastors, I think one with Baptist Bible College in Springfield was another one that went somewhere. So these schools are probably dispensational leaning schools and probably have taught my pastors and former pastors from a dispensational viewpoint. So as I've been taught over the last 30 years, the things that I have learned and come to believe, I've just come to believe them. But I've never really heard the word dispensational theology because nobody's really stood in the pulpit and said, this is where we're getting X, Y, Z. This is why we believe X, Y, Z, because it's in this theological construct. And let me explain this theological construct to you. It's never been in the three churches I've been in in 30 years. I've hardly ever heard the word dispensation. But I believe very strongly, almost on point, and I say almost because I don't know all the points of dispensationalism of what people believe, but I believe in a pre-trib rapture. Um, I believe that, you know, how people were saved in the Old Testament is different, obviously, than how they were saved in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So, you know, I understand that. <clears throat> and again, it's easy for me to to believe it because you just, again, from just looking, you see that the garden is done, the flood is done, uh, you know, Israel in the wilderness is done, the temple is done for now. I mean, like, you can see all these things have clear-cut delineations, and they're done. So, Again, I'm not saying that I'm not a dispensationalist. I'm just saying that I don't know enough about it to unequivocally say, yes, I'm you know, lockstep with 
everything that dispensationalists teach. I probably am, but again, going from this whole perspective is, I don't know enough, but do I feel that I'm cheated because I don't know enough about dispensational theology to make a determination of whether I am a dispensationalist or not? I don't think I feel cheated, and I don't feel myself driven to go study that. I I two points of focus whenever I teach and preach is I love to study faith and I love to study sin. I love to study those two and teach on them. And I don't care where they're found, I'll find them. And that's how I teach. And so I don't feel like I'm missing out by not completely knowing whether or not I'm a dispensationalist because I don't know everything. And that's kind of where I was trying to get at. The whole point was it's not really necessary in my opinion. So I don't know how well I lay that argument out, but that's really my my perspective is I don't feel I'm hurt by not being able to call myself a dispensationalist because I don't know everything about that theological construct, but I'm not rushing out to learn more about it because I don't feel like it's, you seem to think it's going to put track shoes and spike shoes and make me run and my my knowledge might grow exponentially. And maybe it will. And maybe in a few years, I might sit there and go, man, I wish I had started this sooner. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, so I'm not, so, I'm not saying that I don't agree with you. I'm just saying right now where I'm at, I'm not sure it's, it's all that necessary. So with, with that said, I think that, um, one of the, there's a couple of points that I want to make and I, I want to make sure that I don't forget to touch both of them. Um, one of them before I forget, which I will would be, uh, I know that you had made the, the, the statement that it can be harmful in the sense of di- uh, differentiating between Israel and the church because a dispensationalist could have a tendency to um, neglect or forsake the practical teachings that Israel had in the Old Testament and just throw the Old Testament out. And I would say that understanding dispensationalism the correct way would actually give you those track-running shoes for the practical side, because if you can get the doctrinal side down first, for instance, in First Kings chapter eight, you have in chapter nine, you have got the greatest, the greatest two chapters in all of the Bible, practically speaking, through the nation of Israel on how to deal with depression. And it, there, I'm just telling. I know that I've given that example a few, not that specific passage. But that practical side of depression, because that's what most Christians are dealing with today, is depression. Uh, if just from what I see, I might be wrong on that. From what you see, you probably see, you may see different things that people are dealing with. Um, but from that side, I think that if you can get the doctrinal side down and see how it's divided properly, you can take those practical applications from Israel and apply those to your own life. And seeing those two things as different would open up and expand what the practical side is. And so that's why I make the differentiation of Velcro to spikes. But um, the other the other thing that I wanted to point out was uh, um, the difference of Israel and the church. And I, I would like to understand from your perspective, if, if you don't see it as essential to teach... Um, I don't want to say your people because I don't want to make it personal. If 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 a if a preacher or a pastor doesn't see it as essential to teach their people the differences of Old Testament salvation transitioning throughout the Old Testament to New Testament salvation, what do you do when someone wants to talk about those differences or thinks that, you know, 
Messiah <clears throat> gifts are relevant today, or they think that they are Israel is the church today, or they think that God's done with Israel today. What do you do when it comes to someone asking questions about that? Well, let's take, because um, I don't have the answer for all of them, just because, like I said, I don't study this in depth to from this perspective. Um, so for salvation, okay, um, <clears throat> I believe, and I'm not sure exactly where the, where the verse is, it might be in Hebrews, where it talks about the blood of bulls and goats. Yeah, Hebrews 9. Yeah. So basically... That clearly teaches right there that right now that's done, you know, and then you take them to other places in the scripture where it is Corinthians, Second Corinthians, where it talks about the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that blood is, is all supersedes everything now. That's that's the one um, uh, atonement that's done now. There's no more blood sacrifices required. Because what was going on in the temple, first of all, there's no temple anymore. There will be a third one, but there's none right now. So they can't have the animal sacrifice. The temple doesn't exist. And so, but then Jesus came in, of course, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the figurative, well, not figurative, it's literal, but what it meant was with the, uh, the veil being rent in two from top to bottom, you know, that just shows us now that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have access to God now on a very personal level anytime we want to and it's not like it was back in the temple because again it can't be anyway because the temple is not around now and then talk about the sign gifts there's no real verse that says that the sign gifts continued after the last apostle died so why does somebody need to sit there and go yes it did well then show me where it did yeah. So, I, again, I don't necessarily think that you have to get too deep into a dispensational perspective to, for a couple of things where you can just take scripture to scripture, because that's, that's the very basic exegesis there, is take scripture to scripture. So, I guess my question is, um, I, if it's not important to teach people dispensational, is it just you don't want to call it dispensational? Because you obviously recognize the differences which we call dispensations. But if it's not important to teach dispensationalism, quote-unquote, why would you teach the differences at all? I mean, if do you just not want to call I don't understand. Do you just not want to call it dispensationalism? No, I think, <clears throat> I think like I alluded to in, in, my, in my setup, I think there are things that the Bible clearly teaches, and you can clearly see that there's a delineation between the temple stuff and what's going on in the New Testament. I mean, that's, that's clearly the examples I just gave. But I think it's there's just stuff in there as far as dispensations when you start talking about and again I just I'm very basic in my argument because I don't want to make it too convoluted. The very basic thing is one of the major tenets, and I again I, I hate to keep hopping on it, but this is one of my biggest concerns, and I even mentioned that, is if you teach from a perspective of saying this is a dispensational thought, and then somebody says, Well, what does dispensation mean? And then they go look it up and they find out that there's you know, a uh, difference between the way God deals with the church than the way he's dealing with the nation of Israel. And then you go right back to what I am concerned about is somebody not discerning that properly and not getting the full opportunity to learn everything out of the scriptures, the way Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says the scripture is available to them to learn it all. And especially if they erroneously make the mistake. So I'm not 
trying to avoid the label of dispensation, I don't mind teaching something that is clearly delineated. And again, I'm probably lockstep with a lot of stuff that, that the dispensation theology says. And the stuff that I can't say that I am is because of stuff that I don't know what's being taught out there. So I'd have to see how that lines up with my beliefs. But my point is, is that you just, I wouldn't teach it with that label. Because I wouldn't want somebody who I can't control after going to look at something online and go to Wikipedia and find out what dispensational theology is all about and get their knowledge from Wikipedia. No offense to Wikipedia who might be watching, but the point is is that I'm trying to avoid somebody from going off the wrong direction because I use a word like dispensationalism. Yeah. I don't mind teaching those constructs, but I would be afraid to use that word and have somebody go, I don't know what that is, and then not have me available for follow-up because they're at home and I'm 20 minutes from their house and it's 6 o'clock in the morning and they're looking online. Um, and that's kind of where I'm concerned about. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's it always goes back to I don't want somebody getting messed up yeah. because I'm using terms that don't need to be used with somebody who doesn't understand what that is. I can understand your perspective. I guess the only questions I would have would be the reasoning and the methodology of it, but that's not anything that I, you know, would would question on a broadcast. Maybe, maybe if you and I um, talked together, that'd be something that I would ask. But Cliff says this, and I, I think you both uh, both of us could agree. Uh, there ought to be an agreed upon dispensationalist uh, overview. Um, what does he say? Let me get that out of the way. Uh, given to new believers, so when reading the word, they will ask a few questions rather than stumbling into text abuse. An example would be prayer of Jabez. Do you have anything, any thoughts on that? No, it's the first time I'm hearing that, so I'm trying to process it. But uh, you want to paraphrase it? Uh, so yeah, basically, he's, what he's, saying. he's saying that, um, and Cliff, correct me if I'm wrong, I want to make sure that I represent your position accurately. I think he's saying that it, there needs to be a uniform position on what we're going to teach in dispensationalism, so there's so it's not there's not confusion with it. And I think specifically, if I can read into what Cliff is meaning to say, the church that they are going to needs to take a firm stance on what um, divisions they make dispensationally and make sure that it's consistent in what they put out to their people. Oh, I mean, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, you have to be, and that would go through every person that steps into that pulpit. I mean, they would have to be in, in complete agreement on what they're going to teach, obviously. And obviously not just dispensationalism, but I mean, every form of doctrine, you would have to have that spelled out. Without it, there's nobody wondering what's going on. But I agree a whole completely on that one. Absolutely. Okay, um, Jeff had a couple questions. Jeff, don't be mad at us. Um, I went to Cliff before you, and, and I know you asked a question before Cliff. So let me let me see if I can get to your first question. I'm scrolling back up through here. Uh, let's see. Um, Follow-up question here. Let me put it on the screen. Jeff says, if Paul was admonishing Timothy uh, specifically with Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, then has the Great Commission been expanded beyond the specific disciples to whom Jesus was speaking? Do you kind of understand what he's going at there? So, 
So basically, what he's, I think what he's asking is if Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven to go into all the world and teach and preach the gospel to every creature, has that, that command been passed down, so to speak, to every person, every generation after that? Uh, well, hey, is that, I see. Yeah. I, I think, is, that, is that what you think he's asking? Yeah. See, at first I wasn't really understanding the question, but now that you worded it, that way, I think that's, I would say that that's what Jeff is getting at, which is right. kind of pointing at, well, was was what Jesus speaking specifically to those disciples meant only for them, or does it actually apply to us today? So I would say it applies to us today simply from looking at, from this perspective. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So my, my thought is, if Jesus only gave that commission to the disciples, then the world would have been everybody that was living at that time. And the disciples would have had to go to try to proselytize all of those people that were living on that t at that time. However, since that time, God has still continued with the creation of people down through the millennia. So obviously, if God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, just because those disciples died off, that command has to go on just you just have to infer that it just has to go on to the people in the subsequent generations because how else if it was only given to the disciples then when they were done when they died there was nobody else to reach those people and if god's not willing that any should perish but they all should come to repentance why would he be creating more life for millennia on down who have no chance of being saved because nobody there is is um fulfilling the great commission there's nobody that has that charge so that charge definitely got passed down Okay. And thinking off the top of my head, you know, just without uh, having a chance to put that together, but that's what I'm thinking. I think that I would agree with you. Um, I think that I've read some guys that would make that um, question a lot more complicated in their answer, and I'm not even going to attempt to present that. So I will just say yes with a complicated answer. So. Anyways, all right. So Jeff oh, so you says, would say yes, it ended with them, or no, it didn't end with them. Um, the Great Commission. No, the Great. So without without the complicated answer, I just didn't know what you were saying. Yes, too. No, it were did not with end me? with them. The Great Commission didn't. But so here's oh. the complicated side of, of it. Um, he said to go preach the gospel to them and baptize. That that conjunction there in the Greek is directly correlated to baptism with the gospel. And I think that's what would make it very complicated that, no, we are not preaching the same thing that they did because they were preaching a different baptism. So, And you could only get that if you're a dispensationalist because there's seven baptisms in the Bible. <laughs> Anyways, all right. So Jeff says, follow-up question. Let me put it up here. All right, so we run across um, some of the same people that uh, I run across on Twitter, you would run across on Twitter. And I think that there's a movement today, especially online, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to start um, this video through YouTube, my, my page, Making the Hedge, was to give a traditional perspective um, that's open to the public on the internet. Because it is so saturated with Calvinism and Reformed theology, there's not a lot of guys like us who are um, presenting the traditional perspective of the Word of God. Uh, unless I have got a bad read on you and you might be reformed. 
So, <laughs> uh, the question would be, and this is kind of, um, I would take it, Jeff is kind of being funny here, but he may be serious, I don't know. Would a perceived bias for dispensationalism be better or worse than a bias for Reformed theology? That's another topic for another time, for another <laughs> two hours. However, I will say that I just am, uh, yeah, I mean, and I even said it too I, in my notes, I am not putting uh, dispensational theology and Reformed theology in the same vein. I'm just okay. simply saying, yeah, I mean, I unequivocally, and I've said, I said that in the notes, I unequivocally denounce uh, Calvinism. It just it doesn't make any sense. I mean, God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God takes no death in the uh, the death takes no pleasure in death of his saints. I mean, there's no there's no it's irrational and illogical yeah. to to believe Calvinism. I, uh, that's I, just I would, Jeff knows that. I'd completely <laughs> agree with you, Robert. And sometime I would love to uh, maybe we could do a series or something on just some of the the different aspects of. Reformed theology that need to be addressed from a traditional perspective. I don't know, and maybe you don't, you wouldn't call yourself a traditionalist. Um, I don't know that I would call myself. I think that that's probably the most accurate term to describe what I believe, because um, what I believe is uh, traceable throughout history. Not in the sense of uh, it being a tradition versus scripture, but in the sense that um, it's traceable throughout church history. That it's not something that just popped up in the Reformation and here's what we believe. So. Right. Um, anyways, maybe if you're open to that, we could, we could do that sometime, but you don't have to answer now. Toss up question from Jeff. All right. You get three in a row. So I know that there's other questions on here. He says too many Christians try to apply kingdom principles from the gospels when the church is not going to be under the earthly kingdom. Is that good or bad? Um, which exactly kingdom principle, let's say, is he talking about? If he gives an example, maybe I can tell him what I, how I believe about it. Okay, so let me, Jeff, while you're typing that out, if you're still on, let me attempt to um, answer that. Um, I, would, I would say, from my perspective, um, as a dispensationalist, I believe there is a difference between the kingdom of heaven, which is physical and literal and visible, um, compared to the kingdom of God, which is not subject to meat and drink, um, but is spiritual and something that is not seen, which is invisible. And uh, I think that there are differences between the two. So when we hear the term, we're, you know, I'm doing this for the kingdom or we're trying to advance the kingdom, if we're going to be very doctrinal about that statement, what you're really saying is let's do this to bring the kingdom in, which is sort of an all-millennial position that we're going to make it better and better and better and then Christ is going to come back and reign, and that's not the case. It's going to get worse and worse and worse, and Christ come back, comes back and kills everybody that doesn't take his side and sets up his theocratic kingdom with a, a rod of iron, and some people are coming back with him, which I would say is the church and Old Testament saints. The church comes back on horses. The Old Testament saints come back on donkeys. You can see that in Deuteronomy 32 and 31, but uh, you need to have a dispensational perspective to see that. And so long story short, Jeff, I would say that when the church uh, makes statements like that to apply kingdom principles from the gospel, we should make kingdom of God principles, not kingdom of heaven principles in reference to the gospel because 
the church comes back on New Jerusalem, which is not the church as is commonly applied. Uh, the church is on New Jerusalem, not New Jerusalem is the church. Um, but yeah, so to make that um, simple answer complicated, I don't believe it's good in the sense of applying kingdom of heaven statements to the church when it should be kingdom of God statements. Your response, Robert? No, because to be honest with you, um, I am, I'm not a big, choose my words carefully, I'm just going to use vernacular, I'm not a big fan of end times and eschatology. Doesn't mean that I don't find value in it, it's just not something that I've ever really wanted to dig into. I mean, I've had uh, various uh, end times uh, preachers come in, uh, for instance, uh, Jimmy DeYoung, who is a uh, person who lives, he's a journalist who lives in Israel, and he came to our church, well, a former church of mine, a couple of times, and he's very heavy into, um, you know, because he's right in Israel, and he, of course, sees all this stuff going on right around him. And it's interesting to sit and listen to him, and I just, I, I just don't have that bug, again, to use the vernacular. But it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy listening to a message about it. It doesn't mean that I don't feel it's important. It's just, again, and I know a lot of dispensationalists has to do with eschatology. And, you know, and I just, I just lack that drive to learn it. And maybe that makes me a bad person. I don't know. But I'm just saying there's just a, a limit as to where I'm at with all of that. So I don't study it. So I don't know it as much as probably I should, which is why I had that long pause there for a second until you asked me for a rebuttal. I was hoping okay. we were just going to come to another question. <laughs> Sorry, but uh, just, just spot, being man. honest, I mean, I have my, like I said, faith and sin. Those are the two things that I just love to scour the Bible and learn about. And end time stuff is just something that takes a back burner, unfortunately. Okay. Well, I appreciate your honesty and answer. Um, so let's move on. It, so Jeff has got an, um, kind of a better explanation for what you meant. And this would be uh, in reference to the kingdom uh, is the Sermon on the Mount type principles that was the preparation for the Jews should they have accepted him as the Messiah, which would obviously be Matthew 5 and Matthew, what's the other one, 7, I think. But anyways, so yeah, those, if, if I'm going to give my answer on that, um, I think that that would, that, yeah, obviously that would be incorrect because um, those are absolutely without a doubt a reference to um, Christ having both the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God present while he was um, on the earth. When he, when he rose again from the dead, the kingdom of heaven went up with him. And I was going to put a chart up. I didn't have time. I made a chart and uh, broke down where the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is at throughout the whole Bible. Um, I also made a chart or um, had a few different charts on dispensational dispensationalism. And actually, let me put that one up there. I, for those of you guys who are watching may have never seen a chart like this before. This is uh, from who I recommended earlier, Timothy Morton, who designed the Bible Analyzer software. I think that I've got it on here. I hope that I do. Uh, should be... I'm trying to find my screenshot of it. I'm going to have to drag it in here. So give me just a second. Bear with me. I know this isn't that professional, so don't be mad at me. 
Take your time. <clears throat> yeah, my current pastor right now actually loves eschatology. He just loves the study of the end times. He just devours it. And probably if I sat with him for two or three hours, not sure how much he'd like it, but I know I would. And I would just probably sit there and just take note after note. It'd be like taking a sip of water from a fire hydrant, I think, is what it would be like if I tried to learn end times from him. That's, that's awesome. I think, it, for me personally, I believe end times is extremely important. Ah, here it is. All right. Oh, I just took it off. That technology. All right, so if you guys can see this, I'm going to try to blow it up. This is from Timothy Morton. He breaks down uh, the, the dispensations. I want Can you see that chart, Robert? It's not up yet because my phone is kind of frozen from where I am, Okay. unfortunately. Um, so I, it's, it's really good because he includes the covenants and the dispensations. I think that um, one of the conflations that Christians do, especially in Reformed theology, and even in the new IFB movement, they apply the covenants to the church in the sense that um, because they believe the church has replaced Israel. Um, the Bible clearly says that the covenants are given to Israel. They're not for the church. Uh, but then he, anyway, so he, he breaks down in this chart. Um, I think it's very beneficial. I think one thing that every single chart that I've ever seen and uh, um, it doesn't include a dispensation before innocency, and I think that that's extremely important. It just says eternity past. I think that there is definitely a dispensation before um, the garden. I think that it um, would include Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2, which would be the gap theory of the fall of Lucifer and the rebellion of the angels and the choice that God gave them and the choice that they made and the repercussion of God's redemptive plan to correct the poor decision that they made. So, anyways, yeah, this is definitely a bit Larkin-ish, but that's all right. Yeah, I'm looking at, the, I'm, I see the chart up now, I'm looking at it, it's pretty uh, pretty detailed. It is. I, I See, I've never seen anybody put the covenants and the dispensations together, and the organization of it I, I really appreciate. I think that that's good, but... Um, other than that, let's see if we've got any more comments. We've been going for an hour and 45 minutes. Can't believe it. <laughs> Crazy. So, all right, Cliff says, let me put this up. One last question from the audience, and then, Robert, I'll uh, see if you have any last questions for me, and then we'll wrap it up. He says, Cliff says, um, are intrigued by Russia finally on the north? Oh, are you intrigued? By Russia, finally on the north border of Israel, Syria is no more than a puppet kingdom maintained to keep the world's interests out. So where is your blessed hope? Um, I think that that might be a reference to the rapture, I'm not sure. Cliff, can you clarify where you're coming from on that? But maybe that's a reference to uh, uh, triggering the second coming of Christ or the rapture or something with Russia. Maybe you have... I don't know. Some people say that Russia would be Gog and China is Magog. I have got a lot of 
reasons to differ with that if that's a reference that you're making there with China being on the north border of Israel right now. I don't know. But anyways, that's my answer. Robert, do you have anything on that? No, not, not particularly. <clears throat> the only thing I do know and I believe is that at some point in time, uh, you know, all the nations of the world are going to come across, uh, come against Israel. And then eventually they're going to all get together and come against, uh, you know, Christ. And, and, and nothing's going to work out for them in the end. It's all going to be really bad in the, in the Valley of Armageddon. So, uh, you know, I've heard it broken down before. I've heard it like who's going to make alliances with who and things of that nature. But again, it's been a long time. It's very, it's very detailed. There's just a lot to learn in end times. And, uh, you know, not even from a dispensational perspective, just the fact that there's just a lot to learn in the book of Revelation, Daniel and, and uh, other prophetic books of the Bible. So it's just, uh, it's just hard to wrap your head around everything and get a handle on it. So that's some, I just know some snippets and some basics and general principles that I know are going to happen eventually. Like the pre-trib rapture, by the way. Oh, so you think that's going to happen, huh? Pre-trib? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I just can't believe that. How can you believe that? It's obviously in the mid-trib. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, so d let's wrap it up this way. I'll give you the last word. Do you have any questions that you wanted to ask me before we wrap it up here? Um, not really a question, just a comment. Okay. And I've, it's been kind of the vein that I've been saying all along. I, I'm not trying to discount dispensational theology at all. Um, I have I have nothing against it because, again, what I know of it, I agree with. What I don't know of it, I can't really make a distinction or, or put a, make a position on it because I just don't know about it. So I'm not here to, to argue against it as a theological construct completely. Again, my position was, is it necessarily necessary? In some instances, like you were talking about, I think it can get a little complicated for the average church member. But again, you were giving me snippets of different things from things that you've learned that I just haven't learned yet. So maybe once I do learn them, they're not that difficult to understand and learn. And I think that's just the, the, the case is with it, you would take it slowly, take it in little bits, teach it little bits to those who want to learn it. And, you know, you're probably right. It probably would accelerate my learning and not just mine, but other people who would, who would buy into this theological construct. And really open up the Bible when it is. Like right now, maybe the Bible is only open a crack. And dispensation theology will be a wedge that opens the door wide open and exposes me to so much more things. So I'm open to that. And again, I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a dispensationalist, but I think a lot of my beliefs are in line with dispensationalists. So I just don't want people out there who are dispensationalist theologists to think that I'm against it, you know, as it is, because I'm not. I'm just coming from the perspective that I don't know enough about it to really make a decision, but I just think it's something that we need to be careful with when teaching somebody like me who, again, I, I, I'm an average church member, but I do teach a Sunday school and I do preach. So maybe like you called yourself an above average church member, maybe I'll consider myself an above average church member too. And some of this stuff still makes my head spin. So, you know, like I said, I think we just have to be careful with it and know the population that we're working with so that we don't run into some of the pitfalls like I mentioned in my in my opening. So that's my position. Perfect. I'll wrap it up this way. If I said that I was an above average church member, I did not mean to say that. I meant to say that I'm a below average church member um, in oh. 
Well, maybe I misunderstood how you said it. That's all. I probably worded it in a in a way like yeah. that. I did. That wasn't my intention because I I am the most average guy. Let me put it this way. Um, I the only reason I graduated college, which took me five years uh, to get a BS degree, um, was for and I'm not going to mention the college that I went to because uh, I don't know if this professor is still there or not. I had to take a an accounting course four different times. The only way I was going to graduate was if I got a hundred percent on my final exam, which I was destined to fail. Uh, if someone did not intervene and take that test for me and that happened <laughs> and I passed and I graduated and uh, that was um, when I really was introduced to um, the importance of the Bible like um, was my senior year the the last semester of my senior year um, I had thrown a party and uh, this girl came over and we were we were talking she told me about the Bible. We had a bunch of questions, said, let's call the pastor. We called the pastor, and I asked him a bunch of Bible questions, and I've never stopped asking questions since. That's how I learn. That's how I've learned the Bible is asking questions, getting answers, and reading. And um, I, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Um, I think dispensationalism is either that wedge that you need to open the door. If it's not the wedge, it's definitely the spikes. And it'll 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 open the Bible in a whole new light that you've never seen before. Not in some esoteric Gnostic sense, but in the sense that um, I think Paul meant, and I think Timothy meant, when they wrote about divisions and dispensations and studying and dividing and all of these things. I think that I think that that's what they're getting at in studying, not just to study, but to show yourself approved to God, um, because there's a direct impact that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God will have on your heart when you see those things and apply it. Because um, it opens up the the practical side as well, but um, anyways, um, J Robert, I really appreciate you doing this tonight. Jeff, I hope you get to feeling better, and uh, take care of that body, man. I hope that we can get you back soon, and we'll do something like this again. So, I think that'll wrap it up, man. I'm gonna close it out here and um, um, go to a different scene, and then we'll catch up after a while. Robert, thanks again, man. Okay. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. All right. So thank you guys for watching. Those of you who uh, bared with us through the entire hour and 50, almost four minutes now. Um, I think that that was good. That was a really fun conversation to have with Robert. I think he and I get along pretty well. And maybe uh, this is something we can do in the future and uh, pull up and talk about some different subjects. Um, it's been fun. So um, thanks again, guys. Be sure to like and share our videos. Please subscribe as well. Uh, I think that we can use this to get the traditional perspective out to those of us who have a traditional view of the Word of God and uh, try to get the Word of God out there. It will not return void. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks.